People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and it's a great uh, thrill. I think that's the right word. It's a great thrill to have our current guest in the studio, Greg Hurwitz. He's a thriller writer. Greg is a best-selling author of his most recent series, Orphan X, The Nowhere Man, and currently Hellbent. He's in South Africa for a number of literary book festivals, and we are, as I said, it's, it's thrilling to have him in the in the in the studio. I've been talking about Orphan X novels for the last three years. We mention Hellbent most probably every show in November and December in uh, anticipation for its release earlier this year. And uh, I've been promising all of you out there that if Greg comes to South Africa, he will be in our studio, and we're now delivering on that promise. Welcome, Greg. Well, thank you for having me here. That's quite an intro. <laughs> uh, well, n- not as big as your the list of your your your, your books and your uh, your accomplishments in terms of not only novels, it's ninety novels plus comic books. You've written the Wolverine and the Batman comics and you've also worked on a number of screenplays so it's, it's, uh, it's a lot that you've done the first question i'm going to ask you and that's everyone who sits in your seat gets the same question please introduce yourself in your own words and on your own terms wow okay so we're, we're going like the artist studio i like this um so the only thing that i ever wanted to do from as far back as i can remember was to write novels I remember when I was in fourth grade, I was um, reading books and writing little mysteries, and I'd illustrate them with crayons. And they were mysteries. You might be familiar with some of my early work. It's like Willie, Julie, in the case of the buried treasure. Uh, and no one says anything. Everyone like exclaims and retorts. I used all these Hardy Boys words. And my mom says I used to go to bed at night, and I would sleep with the dictionary. Now, part of this was because my parents didn't let me watch television growing up, unless there was a Red Sox game on, because my dad's from Boston, and that's religion, or if there was an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And so Hitchcock, I think, is where I got a lot of the the juice of the kinds of stories and suspense and intrigue that I like writing. But I was on the Stephen King by fifth grade reading under the covers. Um, and, you know, I'd go to the library twice a week. I read the entire young adult and kids section by the time I was in fifth grade. And then I moved on this darker and darker stuff. Um, and so when I went to college, I studied English and psychology, um, and I started my first novel when I was 19 and, um, and that was it. I thought it was the best sort of combination to, to write narrative and to engage a narrative. And I just started my first book when I was 19. I got supremely lucky and sold it and, uh, young and I never had to have a real job. And you've been writing ever since. I've been writing ever since. Family. Uh, yeah. So my dad's a physician. I'm from my dad's, the whole, my whole dad's side of the family are doctors. My sister is a clinical professor of pediatric gastroenterology at Stanford. So they got most of the brain power in the family. My mom's whole side of the family pretty much are lawyers. And my mom works in international adoptions. She's brought in about 3000 kids and placed them in families. And when I said I wanted to be a writer, everyone thought I was an alien. They had no idea where it came from. They... That's my family of origin. I live in LA now. I have I'm married. I have two daughters. I have two giant Rhodesian Ridgebacks, who are you know 125 pounds each, and so that's that's my current family. My current family it makes it sound like I'm going to upgrade them in two <laughs> years. I just mean that's my that's my family, not my family of origin. But you know, we were talking history, so I thought I'd start with the origin story. The the books that you're here to talk about the most. From your whole, uh, from all, from all the books that you've written, are the Orphan X, the Orphan X current, currently it's a trilogy. Can you introduce Evan Smoke, Orphan X, to those of us who already know him? We would like to be reintroduced, and to everybody else there who hasn't yet met him, can you make the intro? All right. Well, Evan Smoke grew up in a really rough boys' foster home in East Baltimore. He moved between a lot of homes, and at the age of twelve. He was pulled out of a foster home um, by his handler and his father figure, whose name is Jack Johns, and he was trained in an off-the-books, um, very, very covert government black program to be the, one of the world's preeminent uh, assassins and operators, and that's called the Orphan Program. And the thing is with his relationship with with Jack Johns is I always thought, you know, we were these this type of story were not 
unfamiliar with, with kids who are raised to be assassins. And I thought, what if instead of this being sort of dreary and miserable, what if Jack was actually a really great person who loved this kid and was like a, you know, became like a father figure and was the first person to treat him like a human being. And there's a key line for me around which the whole series of the book uh, of the books coalesces. And it's when Jack tells him when he's quite young, the hard part isn't going to be making you a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. Um, and so Evan's moral compass was never broken. He's trained one-on-one in hand-to-hand, uh, combat, sniping, demolition, breaching, um, you know, hacking all these different skills through Jack. Nobody in the world knows who he is, but Jack never broke his moral compass and he showed him love and affection for the first time in his life. Now at a certain point, the moral ambiguities of the orphan program, he's committing all these assassinations, you know, where the U.S. government isn't allowed to be legally. He's off the books. He's basically a disposable weapon. They find these kids who nobody wants in the orphan program and turn them into disposable weapons. But the moral ambiguities of that job become too much for him. And he leaves the program. He goes off the radar. They're in pursuit of him. And by the time we first meet him in Orphan X, he's reestablished himself in hiding in like a safe I say a safe house, but it's more like a safe penthouse uh, near Beverly Hills in Los, in Los Angeles. And he's basically become a pro bono assassin for people who are in desperate need. They can call him on a number that's untraceable uh, when they're in a horrible predicament, when they have no one to turn to and the law can't help them and Evan will help them. And the thing that for me is the most, there's two things that are the most compelling for me when I really connected with him. And one of them is, is that we have all these archetypal characters who we love, Jason Bourne, Jack Reacher, and we never get to see them in real life. We never get to see James Bond go home. We never get to see Jason Bourne have like an awkward encounter with a single mom who he has a crush on in the elevator. And I thought, what would it be like if we took one of these archetypal characters that we love and put him in the real world with you and me? So he goes from having this insane knife fight, you know, with, with, an assassin or with, with a gangster. And then he has to come home and he's trying to hide that he's bleeding through his sweatshirt and he crowds in the elevator. And like the elderly Jewish woman who lives upstairs is giving him a hard time because he missed the last HOA meeting and he's trying to cover it up. And one of the suppressors from his gun falls out of a bag. And so it's this constant interplay between the sort of archetypal heroism that we love and the everyday concerns that we all live with. And I would say the other thing is, is that because Jack raised him to be a good human, but because of his background, because he has to be off the radar, he always has his face up to the glass. He's he's forever an outsider bearing a cross of not being able to be part of it. So he lives among ordinary people, but he can never really be one of them because his background is too dangerous. And he doesn't quite understand the intricacies of intimate interaction. So he's got his face up to the glass looking in at all these people leading ordinary lives, the kind of lives that he himself would most want. And the only thing that he can do is to protect them and to help them and to take these sort of missions for them to help them keep these lives. That is the very thing that he probably longs for the most. This is our introduction to Evan Smoke. That's Orphan X. We've been introduced to Orphan X by the creator of Orphan X. That's Greg Hurwitz, who's joining us in studio. We'll be back with more conversation with Greg Hurwitz straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're in conversation with Greg Hurwitz, the author of 19 novels, including the best-selling last three, a trilogy based on the character Orphan X. As I said, it's a great thrill to have you in the studio. The, the books that you write are absolutely, I don't know, um, unputdownable, but that's, just, that's a cliche. I want to ask you, how did Orphan X come to be created? Well, I'd thought about this character, I would say, years before I wrote him. But I was a little bit scared to write the series because I had to really figure out what would be the thing that would differentiate him from all the other characters on the proverbial bookshelf. You know, So I kept writing another book first and another book, and I had this kind of on a low simmer on a back burner as I kept thinking about it. One of the origins for it, I think, is the – I do a lot of research in the field. So I've gone undercover into mind control cults. I've gone down Class 4 whitewater rapids through the jungles of Oaxaca. I've gone up and stuck Where, where's air. Where's Oaxaca? It's in Mexico. It's the jungles of Mexico. You know, I've swam with sharks in Galapagos. I've trained in mixed martial arts fighting. 
mostly badly getting, getting myself injured, but I do a lot of firsthand research and I'm very tight with the SEALs community. I've snuck onto demolition ranges with SEALs and blown up cars to like witness it. So I, I like to, to really if I get on site and do something, then I can give the reader a front row seat to the action. And that's always my aim. I want the reader to feel like they're right in the front row. And in the course of dealing with Army Rangers and Green Berets and SEALs, some of them legendary, like a lot of the guys who are in my orbit now, have led missions that we've all seen on CNN. And they've talked a lot about black programs and black operations um, that – how they're funded, how they work, how they function, what the role is. Of course, they're vague and leave out proper nouns. And I just had this thought of like, what would it be like to have a character if there was a program called the orphan program and they just took the kids that nobody else wants and they took them out and they trained them up and they turned them into these disposable weapons. They're full cutout men. So they can go into a country that the U.S. diplomatically isn't allowed to. They can kill someone that's illegal. If they're captured, they have no backup. They don't even get a star on the wall in the CIA. No one's coming for them. No one will help them. They're fully independent operators. If they're captured and tortured to pieces, they don't know anything. They have no backup and they're considered disposable. And it was so compelling. And so once I had that notion, I did tons of research. I mentioned I trained a bit in mixed martial arts fighting. I went, I have a friend in Vegas who is one of the world's preeminent snipers and uh, armorers in the world. He, I got on every gun that Evan uses from... Benelli combat shotguns to custom Wilson 1911s. Um, and, you know, I dealt with hacking, which is not my strong suit, but I have some friends who are some of the preeminent uh, technical security experts in the world in Silicon Valley. And I just did a ton of research to all in a process or, or all in an attempt to show the, the sort of sequence by which the scared, skinny, little 12-year-old kid could transition from being, you know, in a foster home in East Baltimore, and then eventually become one of the world's preeminent assassins and orphan acts. This, uh, the way that you talk about your research, when you, when, when anyone out there, and you have to go out and buy the copy, all, all three books, Orphan X, Nowhere Man, and Hellbent. If you haven't read them yet, as soon as you finish listening to this interview, you have to head to a bookshop and you, you've got to read them. Because not only is the research done, but when you read the book, you, the, the research flies off the page. It's oh. almost like you're in the middle of a film set that's being made and you can in the film and you can just as a reader I experienced it and I think it's one of the things that draws me to every new book that you publish it's just to experience that that unbelievable 3D surround sound experience that just comes out of the book uh, and that leads me right directly to the next question is how did you come up with what are most probably the most jaw-dropping and belief-defying scenes I think in contemporary thriller writing there's that, that glass box in Nowhere Man, and obviously we can't say more about it. That was stupendous. But the chocolate bar scene in Hellbent is the most brilliant use of chocolate bar in popular <laughs> culture since the pool draining scene in Caddyshack. Oh, boy. Is, that's, a, that's reaching back for a big <laughs> reference. This one has a slightly different deployment to it. But, yes. How do you come up with these scenes? I, you know, I have no idea. The hardest question to answer as writers is where do you get your ideas? And... You know, it's the same thing as where any of us get our ideas. Like, we don't know our minds at all. You know, if I asked you where you got one of your ideas, you probably couldn't say any better than me. I mean, the only thing that I know is my brain was always built for fiction. It was always built for narrative. And I'm very curious about things and constructing them in stories. And one of the first questions I always ask, you know, when I'm on an airplane about to take off or if I'm up the Eiffel Tower, wherever I am, I always think – What's the worst possible thing that could happen right now? That's a game that I play with myself. It's like a thriller writer game. And it's not anxious as much as it is sort of exciting to think about the possibilities. And so I've always thought in a way of how ideas are constructed. I'm constantly listening and watching people and seeing how they interact and reading those small telling details that people have that give you insight into character. Um and it was funny. So my sister was a was a really big reader, as was I when I was growing up. And I still remember a moment I had with her when I was in like fourth or fifth grade where I said, well, when are you going to write your book? And she said, I don't want to write a book. And I, I just – it never occurred to me that everyone in the world who loved reading wouldn't want to be an author. It was the only way that my brain ever kind of operated. 
And so it's always hard to say, but the Snickers bar scene that, that uh, there, yeah, there's a scene with the chocolate bar that, that leads to the death of a lot of people in a way that is, that is somewhat unpredictable. But there are certain ideas that one gets. Like, I have to admit, I got up and like took a victory lap around the office after I typed that one up. So I was pleased with myself. In the same, in the same vein. You, you you hang out you hanging out with a lot of people in secret services who've been in the field. Do you incorporate real incidents that they tell you into your novels? Something that you heard about a CIA operation, a criminal mastermind. Does 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 real events do real events creep into your novels as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, you never want to talk to. Like if you're writing a book and you call police station, they put you in touch with the PIO, which is the public information officer. They're basically like a publicist. Their job is to make everything feel shiny and clean and, and appropriate. That's not who you want to talk to. You want to talk to all the people who don't want to talk to you. And so I've built some of these relationships over years. Like the best guys are people who I had to go out with, go, you know, drinking with, spend a lot of time with and build up a level of trust. It's almost like a journalist cultivating a contact uh, or a source. And what happens is I'm now I have now have a crew of people I'm very, very close with. And it's a big range. I mean, it's from porn stars to pathologists to army rangers to professors. I mean, it's all over the place. And. I found within the intelligence community, the military community, everyone has to sort of vouch for you. It's like a mafia introduction. So if I want to talk to somebody from, you know, the Secret Service, I'll call a buddy who is a, you know, 60 gunner in the SEALs who once did a joint op with the CIA and his CIA buddy was once roommates with someone who's now in the Secret Service. And they have to call and they have to vouch for me. Like it's like vouching for someone to go in the mob. And then I'll sit down with them. And when there's a level of trust, what's really useful is I can talk more they can talk more uncensored with me and trust that we will change a few things if they say, hang on a minute, I don't I don't want that detail to come out. Or if I'm building a bomb from a household device and I'm asking, you know, an explosives expert how to do that, we can talk it all through and then he'll say, OK, we're going to go back now and change three things because we don't want a how to guide in the books, you know. And so I spend a lot of time with them doing that and cultivating that level of trust that we can that we can figure stuff out. And once trust is built too, they let you do stuff like, you know, I get on a lot of guns. I can I can get on whatever I want to. Does the CIA want to vet some of the things that you're out about in case yeah. something that hasn't happened? No. But I will say like my Google search could probably get me arrested by the secret handshake men, like in the middle of the night. So it's good that I have 19 novels out there as, as proof that I'm not actually plotting some of these things. And your, your, your entire written record, all the books that you've published already and, uh, the, 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 the fact that they've been received so well and they're best selling books and you're a best-selling author that doesn't open doors for you amongst all these people it does yeah but the people you really want to talk to don't care as much you know if someone's a hardcore green beret tip of the arrow operator he's not going to be wowed by the fact that like you know i'm i'm a famous is always a relative word but you know i'm a well-known author um they just don't care as much. I mean, it's funny because my, I think it's always important to have friends in different arenas, you know, and you can see this a lot in different fields. Like if people, you see it a lot in Hollywood with actors or producers where all of their friends are in the industry and then they become important and everyone who they're friends with wants something from them. Everyone who, everyone looks up to them for their position. And then they start to actually believe it. They start to believe that they're more important than they are because they're moving through a world that they're interacting only with people who are within that arena, within that specific dominance hierarchy. I've always had friends across a very vast range. I mean, so if one of my friends is who I'm calling to ask something for the books, one of my buddies is one of the world's preeminent solid state physicists. As a friend, he's delighted for me and my success, but he doesn't want anything from me. He's happy for me as a friend. You know, he's impressed, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter. And so those are really good relationships to have, you know, especially as you start to advance in one's career, whatever the career is, whether you're a novelist or an actor or an accountant or a lawyer, it's always good to have friends who are outside of it, who aren't impressed by you unduly and who don't want things from you for advantage. So, you know, when I'm talking to guys, you know, you got to earn it. You have to be, you have to be respectful of them and what they've accomplished um, and you have to not waste their time and you have to also be aware that you're coming at something and that with a bit of humility that they know a lot more about than I do. 
And so, you know, it's funny. There's a line Jack John says to Evan when he's a kid, when he starts his training, he says, you're going to learn a little bit about everything from people who know everything about one thing. And I sort of feel like that's my job. I mean, I'm going to these people who are, who are amazing and it certainly opened some doors for me, but you know, you got to earn the rapport. We, in conversation with Greg Hurwitz, the author of The Orphan X Trilogy, amongst many other books, we'll be back with more conversations straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're in conversation with Greg Hurwitz. He's in South Africa promoting his books Orphan X, Nowhere Man, and uh, Hellbent. They all feature the same protagonist orphan x we're discussing what goes into writing adrenaline fueled uh thrillers uh we've we've heard about the stories that somehow or the research that somehow get onto the page i'd like to move the focus onto the page itself how do you write a book what's the process from the kernel of an idea to the published book when you can go on tour and then promote it what's the What's the process? Well, I have a giant file that I'm always keeping that's filled with ideas. And um, I usually know what the next book is well before I get there. Um, but I have, you know, I have a document with 40 pages of bullet points that are just different ideas. Once my brain starts to get onto a story, I start a new file and I start to put all the ideas into that file. And it kind of grows and grows. And it usually, by the time I start writing a novel, it's, let's say it's 25 pages of bullet points. Some are just lines of dialogue. Some are character notes. Some are action sequence ideas, like the chocolate bar scene, let's say, where it's it's not fully fleshed out. And usually I kind of tinker with it. I do a lot of research. I kind of mash these bullet points into some sort of rough shape, kind of what's stuff that happens at the beginning, what's stuff that happens at the end, what's stuff relevant to one character, and then I generally have an idea of the first three or four chapters of a book. And so then I'll start to write that. I have two big giant monitors on my desk and I put them side by side. And so I start to write the book. And as I start writing the book, I'm also continue to write on what I'm calling this kind of outline, but it's not really an outline. It's more of a roadmap. So as I write the first three chapters, maybe something will occur to me and I, I've sort of dropped a handkerchief to, to use a, the Shakespearean term early on. And then I'll go back to the outline and say I should reference it somewhere in the middle and I should pay it off somewhere at the end. So both of the documents are living, breathing documents. Um, and what usually happens is I call it a rolling outline. I get to the end of that and then I shape up the next few chapters kind of out of the clay of, of these bullet points. And then, you know, I keep writing and then somewhere around the middle or two thirds through the book, I just kind of mash through the outline and kind of shape the rest of it up. But it's always growing and changing. And as I as it transforms into the book on my left monitor, I'm deleting the bullet points on the right monitor. And at the end of the process on the left monitor is a 400 page novel. And on the right monitor is a blank document that I trash. How many hours a day do you spend writing? Um it's funny because I'm, I'm touring a lot. I mean, last year I did nine countries in seven months and I do, I'm doing a good amount of TV and, and film now too, which takes up time with meetings and pitches or, you know, like I had a movie come out last year and I was on, on set with production. So my schedule isn't quite as stable as it used to be. But when on, I'd say on an average day when I'm home, I'm at my desk from 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. at a minimum. Um, there's times that that goes longer if I'm on multiple deadlines. If I'm on deadline for a TV show, a TV show cannot shut down. It costs a quarter of a million dollars a day. And so there was one time where the room was behind, the writing room was behind and I just sat down and wrote an entire script in one 23 hour sitting. So I can get into these sort of great manic blasts when things are going well or when there's a necessity for it. But at a minimum, I'm making sure that I'm writing eight to 10 hours a day every day. And for a novel, how, how many weeks or months is that eight to 10 hours a day writing? Well, it's, it's so broken up now. It's hard to say. I mean, literally it's, you know, last year I was out of the, I was out of the country more than I was in the country, I think for a six month stretch. So the timing gets screwy. If I was left totally alone, I could probably finish a rough draft in three months, a rough draft, but that's never the case anymore because what happens is I'm copy editing one book. I'm rough draft writing the next book. I'm on tour promoting another book. I have a TV pitch that I'm taking out. You know, maybe I'm rewriting a screenplay and everything just gets a bit jumbled, which is not 
a, you know, this is not a problem that I'm complaining about. This is exactly the kind of problems that you want to have as a writer, but it, it, it makes it more confounding to try and answer questions about routine. What do you do in off time? Because that's a very intense writing. Yeah. Well, I drink a lot of alcohol. <laughs> um, I like bourbon. I like scotch. Evan Smoke drinks the world's finest vodkas. And now all these vodka companies from around the world send me their vodkas because they want me to write about them. Because if I write about them, their sales tend to go up. Um, but that's not a good long-term solution. I, I do a lot of sports. I find it's really helpful to get me out of my head and into my body again at the end of the day. Um, I was a pole vaulter in college. That was my, that was my sport in high school and college, but I also grew up playing soccer. And so I still play soccer. Uh, I still play softball. I still play tennis. I hike a lot. I, t- I take big hikes with my dogs, my two boys. Um, and you know, I love movies. I love reading. I love TV. Um, you know, travel seems to be taking care of itself because I'm, you know, I, it's, I, I'm traveling so much for work, but I try and sneak in a family trip here and there also. And I also meditate the way that Evan does. Um, I've been meditating a lot more in the last, you know, a couple of years. I found that really useful way to try and still my brain and probably a more healthy option than bourbon. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a, a slight detour from the books because you've mentioned a number of things in this, in your last few responses. You, you, you talk, you're working on TV series and you're working on, uh, you had a movie that was, that was, that was filmed, you said last year. Before we get to that movie, are any of the Orphan X novels going to be in production for a movie? Have Nothing's in production right now. I sold it to Bradley Cooper uh, at Warner Brothers. I sent it only to him because I wanted him to star in it. And I wrote an adaptation for him over at Warner Brothers. And then I, I sort of lost him into uh, – he wrote, directed, and starred in uh, a remake of A Star is Born with Lady Gaga. And we lost him due to scheduling. I'm working with him actually on another book that he brought me for TV called Black Flags about the rise of ISIS. Um, and when we took that out to sell it for TV, uh, the week that we were selling it, it won the Pulitzer Prize. And so that was very useful. I recommend, I recommend having the book that you're trying to sell win the Pulitzer Prize when you're in the middle of negotiations because it proves somewhat helpful. Um, so I'm now trying to figure out what to do with Orphan X. I, I, there will be a plan to move it forward again in development, and I'm just in the midst of that now. And then you've mentioned other book, another book that was made into a movie. What, what other of oh, your, that your wasn't novels? a book. That was an original screenplay. Uh-huh. It was called The Book of Henry. It starred Naomi Watts um, and Jacob Tremblay, Sarah Silverman, Dean Norris, Lee Pace, Maddie Ziegler, um, Jaden Liebenher. Amazing cast. And it's from a script I wrote 18 years ago. It took me 18 years to get it made. And what finally got it made was the I'd found a director who'd done this, you know, independent movie that was terrific. Uh, called Safety Not Guaranteed, little Sundance movie. I think it cost half a million dollars. We met. He read the script. He totally got the script. And it's not a hugely expensive movie, um, um, but, you know, it's a – and so anyway, so he was saying, you know, we were meeting. We were going to try and see how we could put it together and get the financing. We needed around, I don't know, $10 million we were looking for. And he said, look, the only way I won't do this is I just had a meeting with Steven Spielberg and there's no way this would conceivably ever happen. But I met on Jurassic World and I had an idea for it, but I'm not going to get hired. So let's not worry about it. So two weeks later, he calls me and he goes, dude, I'm so sorry. Uh, Steven just hired me for Jurassic World. And so obviously he had to go do that, right? So he went and made Jurassic World. I got another, you know, and he said to me, look, maybe this movie will make, you know, all this money and I can come back and we can just get the book of Henry, my movie made. So he went and shot that. I had another director come, the director left and he came back, you know, Jurassic World made $2 billion and he came back and honored his word. His name's Colin Trevorrow and made my little movie, you know, in between that and his next giant venture. And so that's the thing that got it made. You know, we sent it to Naomi Watts, who was far and away my top choice. And, you know, Jacob Tremblay was wonderful. And we got, you know, he brought part of his crew, Colin did from Jurassic to shoot it. We had John Schwartzman, who's, you know, Oscar guy for Seabiscuit, amazing cinematographer. Michael Giacchino uh, did the score. He won the Oscar for Up. And we had just an incredible team. Stevie Nicks sings the song at the end. Um, and so we put together, you know, this, this lovely little movie 18 years after I first typed it. The, have any of your other novels been made into movies? Not, no, I've adapted some and I've adapted other people's work, but nothing's been made. I have had 
in you know in Hollywood sometimes you do jobs for rewriting to production where you're not credited but you know I have helped get other movies produced but my job was to write to production or write to casting or do a production rewrite so but you're building connections with people in all different worlds all the time. So when you have to put up, as you said earlier on, the, the wider your, your network of friends, the more experiences you have. Yeah, that's true, you know, and then you got to deliver and you got to be, you know, decent to work with. It's very important to be good, very professional and good to work with because you meet the same people on the way down that you meet on the way up, you know. So if you if you have a stumble or something, you don't want to have been Machiavellian in your rise because people are just waiting with their knives sharpened for you. And which TV which TV series have you worked on? Uh, I wrote and produced a show called V for ABC. It was a reboot uh, of the science fiction show from the 80s. That was really fun. I did that through two seasons. And then I wrote an episode of Queen of the South. Um, and, uh, you know, I've done stuff more in and out. A V was basically because I needed a lot of – I didn't have production – as much production experience when I started. And the show was on its third showrunner by episode four. I mean, they were having a lot of problems. And um, and the showrunner, who's now a very dear friend of mine named Scott Rosenbaum, um, you know – I, I didn't know him, but he hired me basically to do like one day a week and write a half a script. And I wound up writing a quarter of all the scripts. I mean, I came in and we just jammed on it. And so that was, you know, a lot. I mean, I wrote part of eight episodes and produced 18 episodes in the course of a year. Um, and so I got a lot of production experience. I mostly write pilots. I'm mostly interested in getting a show made that I've created now. I mean, and, and that's even before that too. That's always been my emphasis, but that's hard. You know, even if you sell it, you know, the odds are long. And then once it's bought, the odds are like one in 20 that you'll make it on the air. And, but that's where my interest lies now is in creating my own material. And so I have, I have about three things rotating through right now that I'm really excited about. And comics, you worked on both Batman and Wolverine. Yeah, and The Punisher. And The Punisher, yeah. yeah. The, the, that also gave you a whole lot of experience in superheroes and bringing superheroes to life. Yeah, I mean, well, what's interesting is I started with the street-level guys. I started with The Punisher, who's basically, you know, like a real badass, but he doesn't have any magical powers. And, you know, I was drawn to Batman in a lot of ways because Batman represents sort of the pinnacle of human ability, like, he doesn't have a magic ring. He can't fly. He doesn't have any superpowers. He's driven by grief. Um, and he just represents the, the the pinnacle of what humans can accomplish through discipline and through talent and hard work. You know, he's got gadgets. He's got unlimited resources. It's interesting. There's a lot of Batman references in the Orphan X books, you know. And and Charles Van Skyver, uh, who is Evan's nemesis, uh, is actually named after one of my Batman artists, uh, a guy called Ethan Van Skyver, who's one of the great comic book artists in the world. And so I was drawn to the guy. I, I was more drawn to the guys who were real, who didn't have superpowers. And Batman's in that camp, you know. The 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 ability that you have to deliver adrenaline fueled thrillers is you're very successful at that. But when I read your when I read your thrillers, I have a feeling that you don't just want the fireworks and the pyrotechnics and the thrills. You you also want to get beneath the surface of the psychology of your of your protagonists, and you want to you want to investigate something more fundamental about the human condition. And I think if you didn't have that in your books, you wouldn't have the same fellowship that you do have. I think we all crave something more than just the thrill. We, I think what makes a great book, it elevates a great book above a good book, is a great book gets to the to the core of some aspect about the human condition. I think Evan does that, even though on some levels he is like Batman. He's like a superhero. He doesn't have any natural abilities, but he's developed himself. He's been developed by his handler, so he can be he can operate on almost a superhuman level. But at the same time, he is. He is that human being who could be on in the lift with us, going up to the thirteenth floor of his or whatever it is of his high rise of his high rise apartment building. Can you can you can you talk about the the psychology behind your 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 characters? Well, I I can probably not as well as you just did because that was that was very well stated. I mean, I at risk of sounding pretentious, um, I think of the Orphan X series as is a sort of exploration of the human condition in a thriller format. 
I'm not just interested in the research. And we've all read those books or been in those movies where it's never ending action and you just get action fatigue. You just get tired. You just start getting feeling like you're getting punched in the face with plot over and over again. If we don't care about character, we don't care about anything. And if you think about your favorite moments with James Bond or Jason Bourne, it's always some character moment. It's always something that's emotional or is deeper. It's all about what that connection is. Um, I talked at some length about, you know, Evan and, and where he comes from and, and, you know, his connection to wanting to be, he's, a, he's forever an outsider looking in, but he wants, he lives among real people and he wants that so badly, but the only thing he can do is, is sort of protect them. And in a way, you know, the series is sort of charting his awakening awareness of humanity, of his own humanity and of how to live in the world in a real way instead of the way that he's been raised. Um, you know, it's also not a coincidence that he, um, he was the smallest kid in the foster home when he was 12 years old. He was bullied fairly brutally. And so he is who he is. There's a point when Jack says to him, you know, he says, why did you choose me? And he says, you know what it means to feel vulnerable. Don't ever forget that. And it's a hard thing to hear, but there's a part of him that understands that he wasn't always the, the best and the smoothest operator the way that James Bond seems to have been. He's someone who understands what it's like to have been bullied to be powerless. And I think we, that's something we can all relate to. All of us have had times in our lives that we feel less than, that we feel like we're not up to a task, where we feel like circumstances are going to overwhelm us. And so by dint of his own grit and determination, he's built himself into something and someone who's highly capable, but where he feels vulnerable is when he's in an interaction that's social and he doesn't know what to say. You know, I say he can calculate the windage on a sniper round very, very comfortably, um, but he has no idea how to make small talk by the mail slots, you know, or if he has a, uh, you know, kind of a attraction to the single mom who lives downstairs from him, Mia Hall, who's a district attorney, which is, of course, complicated by the fact that if she ever knew who he really was, she'd have to arrest him. But, you know, if she asks him to come over for dinner... And she's a single mom to an eight-year-old boy who, who like, thinks Evan's amazing. He has no idea what people do. Like, do you bring a, a bottle of wine over? Do you bring a chilled vodka that's high-end from Poland? I mean, he gets very flustered in these ways that still come out. And I think that's something we can all relate to. I mean, none of us have everything figured out, no matter how smooth and shiny we look from the outside. I'm going to ask you a personal question. Would uh -oh. you like to be Evan Smoke? To even to a limited degree, don't we sometimes write our fantasies and our aspirations? Yeah, I mean, I think he's like a way better, more badass version of myself, you know? So he's there's a lot of me and him. But, I mean, the good thing with writing is, you know, when you're at like a dinner party or a cocktail party and somebody says something that's slighting or passive-aggressive and you're caught off guard and then you're driving home later that night and you're like, oh, I got the perfect retort and you want to rewind and do it? I mean, the good thing with the book is you can do that for a year. You know, you can think of the perfect retort, you know, that Evan should have in a certain moment and go back and do it. So he's a, a well-cultivated, much better, much braver and more physically impressive version of myself. Uh, we are speaking to the author of Orphan X, Greg Hurwitz. Uh, we just looked at the overlaps between author and creator. We'll be back after this ad break with a few more questions in conversation with Greg Hurwitz. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We have Greg Hurwitz, an, author, an, an American author in the studio. This is, as I've been saying the whole time, this is absolutely thrilling. Thriller writer that there's no, if you want to read, if you want to read thriller writing at the top of the game, Greg Hurwitz writes it. Orphan X and the, the following two books, Nowhere Man Land, Nowhere Man and then Hellbent are available in the shops. Greg is in South Africa promoting his book, appearing at uh, book festivals both in Johannesburg and in Cape Town. And it's our honor and privilege to have him here in the studio. There's a, a very big, important aspect of the Orphan X books, and that's Evan Smoke's Man Cave on a, of an Apartment. You've got to describe it for people who haven't read the book yet. Well... So Evan lives in a slightly dated high-rise apartment on the Wilshire Corridor in Los Angeles, which is the one place we have kind of residential towers. L.A. is a sprawling city, uh, but it's not like New York. And so there's these residential high-rises, and his 
when he goes to it, uh, he's in the penthouse suite and it's, it seems ordinary like all the other apartments, but you know, his door has all these interlocking mechanisms. There's all these hidden security measures, right? There's motion detection and vibration shatterproofing in the windows. I mean, there's all these hidden elements. And when you enter it, it's unbelievably stark and modern, like a Scandinavian design. It's, there's a big open plane, um, uh, that's about 5,000 square feet. No, actually, I think I have that wrong, so don't quote me on that. That's horrible when you forget details from your own books. It's even, I think it might even be bigger. It might be 7,000. And basically, everything is super cold and clean. Like, he has a polished sub-zero refrigerator. He has workout stations that are positioned everywhere. And the only, the only thing that is living in his entire apartment, really, is a living wall, which is a vertical garden that's drip-fed that is by the um by the kitchen so he can pluck off you know a leaf of basil if he wants to add that to his martini his freezer drawer holds the world's finest martinis and if you wander down the one hall to his bedroom you pass a you know an ancient samurai sword and then in his bedroom uh he has a floating bed and it's basically a slab of metal that's repelled from the floor by rare earth um um, magnets. And so it's, there's cables that actually tether it to the ground. Cause if the cables broke, it would fly up through the ceiling and, you know, take flight over Beverly Hills. And so it's just this floating slab with a mattress. Everything's very minimalist. And if you go into the bathroom, there's a frosted, uh, shower door on a barn, kind of a barn door hinge. And if you tap it and open it and he grips the handle of the hot water lever that's, that's coded to the, the, the print of his palm. And if he turns it the wrong way, it opens into a hidden space that he calls the vault that's hidden behind the, behind the shower. And that contains, uh, that's sort of the nerve center of his operations. He has gun safes. He has a big, um, a hammered metal L shaped desk that's designed on one that I had, I had built by Israelis when I first moved to LA. It's like a wrapped sheet metal industrial desk. And he has feeds that he's hacked into of all the federal and state databases. So he's a full sort of operations center um, with weapons, with tech, with everything that he needs in there that's completely hidden in this irregular kind of dark space. Um, and so that's his apartment. And it strikes such a contrast. I would mentioned earlier Mia Hall, who is the, the district attorney single mother who lives downstairs. And when he goes to her house... It's filled with light and life and color. She has throw pillows. She has laundry, you know, dirty laundry on the floor. You know, Peter, her son, is scribbled with crayons on the wall. There's, you know, it smells like food and cooking. And there's all the mess of normal and real human interaction in her house. And it's so different in contrast from the place that he lives that's amazing and clean, um, but but ultimately a bit sterile and lifeless. And it's a theme that really interests me a lot and I played with when I was writing Batman, which is there's a sort of balance between intimacy and perfection. Um, the less intimacy you have, the more perfection you can seemingly attain. Um, and it's one of the reasons why Batman is who he is. His parents died when he was very young. There's always Robin. Robin always gets killed. There's a new Robin. The new Robin gets killed. He's all alone up in Wayne Manor. If you're all alone... You can hold to your schedule. You can work out. You can meditate. You can train. You can be the height of discipline. But people are people are confusing, right? Once you're dating someone, once you marry someone, once you have kids, the more intimacy that we allow in, the more complications, the more that we expand what I think of as our, our surface area of vulnerability is bigger. And there's a lot of mess that comes with people. You know, they can't be cleaned up like a, like a poured concrete slab countertop. And so... He's constantly struggling with that because he has elements of being OCD, of wanting everything to be pristine, of wanting everything to be razor sharp perfect. And that's his training and that's his natural proclivity too. But he was trained that way, that you need he needs to be perfect in all regards. But everybody, no matter your training or background, we all have a longing for intimacy, for family, for human connection. And so that's something that he wants. But if you're going to accept that, then you accept risk and fear and mess along with the positives, and that's a balance he's always grappling with. But in Orphan X's case, that vulnerability, if he does forge intimate relations with relationships with people, he will, if anyone, any of his former enemies find out who he is, he's going to be endangering the people yes. he loves the most. Yeah. So for him, it's not just perfection against intimacy. It's that intimacy will create extra vulnerability that his past will uh, could potentially unleash upon anyone that he 
loves. That's a really good point. I think I should start interviewing you about the books. You're making you're making very better points than I am here. That's a big part of it. I mean, he's he's trapped being alone in certain regards because if he does get close to anybody, he knows what's coming. You know, he knows the full weight of the government is, you know, is is behind him and that he's viewed as a dangerous unstable asset. If they ever find him, they're going to they're going to throw everything they can at him to kill him. The a very important part of the book in terms of relationships is the darker underbelly of the orphan project and their uh, orphan ex Evans uh, nemesis Van Scriver who's orphan Y and also his uh, lady partner in crime Candy McClure these are very powerful very dark personalities how do you create them and how do you uh, how do you how do you imbue them with the the potential that they create that tension the whole way through the novel well one of the things i learned early in my career is to stop writing heroes and villains and to start writing antagonists and protagonists and it's very important to me to not have characters be uniformly good or bad evan is is deeply flawed in a lot of ways and I think like younger writers, we tend to start off thinking that our our heroes have to be the best and they have to be great and that's what's going to make us like them. But what makes us like people are actually when you see somebody, when they make a mistake and they feel badly for it. That engages a level of empathy that we feel for them. And so sometimes the flaws in a character are what make us love them. Likewise, with a antagonist, they need to have a point of view that they that they believe. They need to have something valid beyond sheer evil. And, you know, as has been said many a time before me, you know, the bad guy never thinks he's the bad guy. So it's all about finding the rationale that somebody else has. And maybe that's a rationale that you or I could relate to 10% or 15% or 50%. And if you can find that argument in someone, that's what makes them more compelling. Just on, on, on Candy McClure, I was reminded of this character when I watched the second Kingsman movie with the Julian Moore character. Mm. She reminds me of your character, um, Candy McClure. It's almost funny. (laughs) If you're going to ever cast the movie, she could possibly be uh, an actress that you'd put in that position. Um, as As a thriller writer, you obviously are reading other thriller writers. Who do you read? Oh, gosh. I read so many people. So I'm the obvious suspects. You know, I love. Lee Child's work. I love. I think Thomas Harris is the great. I think Red Dragon's the greatest thriller ever written. Um, but I, I want to name some people who are a little bit less obvious, perhaps. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Megan Abbott's. Um, she writes a very. She's yeah. got a book coming out later this year. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. She, I think she's terrific. That it's a very different type of book. She writes about sort of the intrigue and complexity. And darkness around young women's sexuality and how that entangles them in, you know, s- stories of, of, of intrigue and, and treacherousness. She's just a beautiful writer. I love Jesse Kellerman, uh, who is Jonathan and Faye's son. Uh, I think he's a spectacular talent. Um, See, there's a case where the child, the parents, if, if, if the child wanted to be a doctor, the parents would have been very surprised. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they would have been mortified. Um, so... Um, and there's two books I've read this year, last year, I'd say my two favorite books that are new is there's a book called IQ by someone named Joe Ide. Um, and it's a, it's sort of set in, in South central LA in a really tough neighborhood. It's a modern take. It's a, it's a African American lead and he's sort of like a contemporary version of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but it's very gritty and streetwise and just written with beautiful street poetics. And there's a book by a writer named Joseph Knox um, called Sirens um, that is Manchester noir, I would say, contemporary. And he's just exquisite with language and character. And I, I just thought the world of the book. I think it was it was sent to me to blurb, as was IQ. And there's these books that you get to blurb that, you know, a lot of stuff comes in and some of it's good and some of it's okay and some of it you want to support. And then there's those books you're reading and you can't wait to – not only blurb it, but to really, you know, encourage readers to get on board with it. And, um, it, I mean, those books were just a delight. I mean, I feel, I felt like honored to be able to blurb both of them. And I talk about them all the time. I think they're amazing. What does it feel like to be sent books to blurb? Um, some, and, and to be the standard, because now, if you look at modern thrillers, 
contemporary thrillers. They all compared to two books, Orphan X and um, the the Terry Hayes book. Uh, now my mind's gone black. <laughs> I am Pilgrim. I am Pilgrim. Yes, ah. he's got a new one coming out this year as well. But you, Greg Hurwitz, and I am Pilgrim. Those are Orphan X and I am Pilgrim. That's the standard that contemporary thrillers are being compared to. Well, that's that's very kind. I mean, I would argue there's some other people in there. I think Lee Child is certainly in there, and David Baldacci, and I mean, they're they're a little more crime, perhaps. Than- and, and they've been known for much longer. We want that's true. To- yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there, look, there's a lot of terrific people writing for sure, but it's, it is great to, there's these surreal moments when people are describing books as saying it's a blend between Orphan X and Jack Reacher. I mean, it's things enhance, you know, I mean, I, I, I approach most of it with, with some measure of disbelief. Like I feel like I wake up every morning and, and head down the hall to my office writing a surge of gratitude. Um, so I think that a combination of gratitude and humility seems the best th- that probably characterizes it the most. And if I ever get flustered, like, you know, I got five R- uh, advanced readers copies in a week to blurb. And if I ever start going, God, you know, it's, it's, it's getting a bit overwhelming. You know, it's always important to stop and go, you know what? This is a, this is a position that is the, the only one I wanted since I was a little kid. And so, you know, be grateful for this. What are you currently working on? Is there another Orphan X book that's been uh... there? Sure is. You saw how Hellbent ended, so there has to be. If I didn't have one, people would come after me with torches and pitchforks. Um, so there's a new Orphan X book coming out uh, in January. I'm working on that. Uh, I have I wrote two young adult books the last two years. Those will be coming to this market soon. They're called The Rains and Last Chance. Um, I, they're not published here yet, but they've been out in the, in the states. Um, I'm excited about that. I'm working on the adaptation of Black Flags, which I mentioned earlier, the the book about the rise of ISIS. Um, and I'm repositioning Orphan X, um, you know, as a I'm, I'm figuring out how to reposition that for screen. Um, and then I also have a spec screenplay that I'm out with right now. Well, that's totally independent of all yeah. of this. This has been an hour interview. We've been talking to Greg Hurwitz, the author of Orphan X series of books and the series is going to continue, as you heard right now, a new Orphan X book, book out next year in January 2019. If you haven't read the books yet, you have to go and get a copy, and you might be able to catch Greg at one of the different uh, events that he is going to be uh, keynoting or highlight. He's going to be keynoting in, in South Africa, in Joburg or in Cape Town. Uh, if you do like your adrenaline served on the page, then this is the author to read. He's an author not only to read, or not even to say to watch, because he's already created a great, uh, a great name and buzz around his 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 own name and around his books. And for us, it's been an absolute privilege. I've been I've been looking forward to this interview since the beginning of the year when the friends at Penguin Random House told me that Greg is coming to Franschhoek and he's coming to the Kingsmead Book Festivals. I've been uh, I've been finding almost weekly you can ask Lauren. <laughs> so can I please can I please have an interview? So uh, I think everyone listens to people of the book across uh, across Johannesburg now that knows that we 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 firm believers in 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 in, in the quality of Orphan X and in the ability that you Greg have to deliver great great writing thriller writing but there's something like beneath the surface that will keep that human element alive for us as well and just just to finish off with a great sense of gratitude that you came and you joined us in our studio for an hour of your time here in busy, cold Johannesburg. And uh, the greatest success for everything that you turn your hand to. Thank you. Well, it's been a delight being here.